Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. Exodus chapter 7, we begin looking at a daunting piece of scripture as far as I am concerned. Uh, I've been, I guess, preaching and teaching the Bible for a number of years, specifically as a pastor for 10 years. I've never taught through the plagues in Egypt, not in my lifetime. I know them all, I think. I've never taught through them at all, and so it's a bit of a daunting thing because, show of hands, if you've sat through a sermon in the last five years where a preacher talked about the plagues in Egypt, you've heard people, nobody's heard people, oh my goodness, what are preachers preaching? Probably preaching the New Testament and loving hippie stuff and all that. Today, the ten plagues in Egypt where God judges people for being wicked. That's better than lovey-dovey stuff. It's daunting to me. I am laboring through it, asking myself, Father... Show us what there is for us to learn as we journey through the plagues. Any child under the age of, let's give it 12, every child over 12 is excluded, especially the ones that are in their, you know, years. Under 12, can any child tell me the first plague that God plagued Egypt with? Put your hand up and show me. If the under 12 can't do it, I'll open it to 12 to 16. Any child under 12 can tell me the first plague. Okay, 12 to 16, Creed, you went first. The first plague. Blood. Thank you. The first plague. On our journey through Exodus, our focus has been on God who delivers, redeems, and dwells with his people. And it is right for us to focus on these words. These words rightly bring to mind thoughts of love, thoughts of kindness, God delivering, redeeming, and dwelling with us. But we must remember that while God is love, let's not forget that, God is love. While God is love, fully and perfectly, he is also perfectly righteous and just. And God will not clear the wicked who have not, through faith, been saved by grace. There is no clearing of the wicked. God tells us that. I will by no means clear the wicked, says God, Exodus 34 and other various Old Testament passages. God will, note takers are going to want to write this down because the next several chapters, this is a recurring theme and I'm probably going to say it more frequently, which I don't often repeat myself as much, but we can't help but stare it in the face as we walk through these plagues. God will execute his judgment in whatever way he has determined to do it. We struggle with the judgment of God. But this is going to start, last week was a demonstration. If you were here last week, we saw the staves thrown down and they became serpents. And then one staff, the staff of God, Aaron's staff, consumed the staffs of the Egyptian magicians in a demonstration of God's power. Demonstration of God's power is over, even though God's power will be demonstrated. We now move into the first plague. This is judgment. God is judging Egypt. Egypt is wicked. Egypt is idolatrous. They worship false gods. We saw Pharaoh's position against God. We're going to take a look at that even still a little bit this morning. It's hard for us to grapple with the judgment of God because false doctrine has so perverted and distorted the love of God that we have left no room for the justice of God. And so by the time we, even as Christians, get to Exodus chapter 12, 13, and 14, and and God kills the firstborn male of every home of the Egyptians, even we go, we don't like that because we are sinful and we recognize ourselves in the Egyptians. Now, you may not be processing it that way, but that is the intuitive method with which we cringe at God judging Egypt. Ew, killed all the firstborn males. Why would he do it? Because he is righteous and he is holy. And he is executing his judgment. Over the next several weeks, we are going to see the judgment of God on Pharaoh. Over and over in various ways, up to that final plague, which will bring a hard-hearted man and a wicked nation to its knees. This is very important because when we see the judgment of God these days, which we don't look for, but is always happening and will lead to his final judgment, 
Christians are not prepared to explain the justice of God. God must punish evil. He is not God if he does not. He must. And so when it is punished in the world, we recoil. And over and over, Christians have no way to explain it, even though you have all you have ever needed to explain the righteous justice of God. Would you read with me today Exodus chapter 7, just 10 simple verses, 14 through 24. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals and their ponds and their pools of water, so that they become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the lands of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Would you pray with me today? God, we come before you today, stepping into these pages of Scripture where you judge a wicked people for disobedience. I pray, Father, that you will help us to learn from your word about your justice. You will punish those who are disobedient to you. You will punish the wicked, the rebellious. Father, I pray, if there are any gathered among us today who are rebellious, disobedient, wicked, I pray, God, that the warning of your word would sound loudly to them that they would repent. God, I pray today through the preaching of your word that you would humble sinners to repentance and salvation. I pray, God, that holiness would be promoted among your people, that we would live the holy life you have called us to. And I pray, Father, that Christ, the Savior, the Lord, the one day returning King would be exalted as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I've told you I enjoy titling sermons from somewhere in the, te- in the text, and this week actually took me a long time to title it because the plagues in Egypt are such a vast topic, I wasn't sure what to do, and so I ended up with, and the Nile stank. And as I worked through the passage, that became a very fitting title for this passage. The next time we gather together regarding the book of uh, Exodus and the plagues of Egypt, we will see that not only the Nile, but also the land stank. Uh, so we're going to keep watching through as we go. The Nile stank. I have one thing that I want us to see and really begin to grasp out of today's text. It's not written here, but as the text unfolds itself, we will see it so clearly. This is the one thing I want us to see and begin grasping as we work through this passage. God is working all things together for his glory. And everybody said, that's not how that verse goes. Yes, it is. You just all want to pay attention to, for my good. We all stop at, God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. That's where we stop, and we're wrong to stop there. It's not incorrect, it's just thoroughly incomplete. 
God is working all things together for his glory and for the good of his people. The verse is Romans 8, verse 28. You don't have to turn there, but you can jot it down. And in fact, if you're looking for a passage of scripture to read this week, I would strongly recommend the book of Romans. Start in Romans 1. If you can't start there, start anywhere. Pick it and read. But Romans 1 is where Paul started. It's where the Holy Spirit led him to start, so it's where we should start. Romans 8, 28 says this, And we know that for those who love God... All things work out for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's how the whole verse goes. So the next time you hear somebody say, well, you know, God is working all things together for those who love him. You can say, right, those who love him and are called by him according to his purpose. And what is God's purpose? His glory Listen, whenever you become the creator of the known everything, you can claim glory for yourself too. But until that day, God is the one who reserves the right to desire and deserve and demand his glory. And he is not selfish or wrong in doing so like we are. We love to demand our own glory. We love to seek our own praise. But we are wrong in our motive and in our heart when we do so. When God says, I will be glorified, he is right to do so. And we are not. So we give God glory. My prayer is that today we would see and begin to grasp the deep truth that though God does do good things for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, God is ultimately doing all things for his glory. And there is a deep relationship in our good and the glory of God. I wrestled with what to title this sermon because as the text unfolded, I kept seeing God's glory more and more. And as we work through the plagues in Egypt, honestly, God is being glorified over his enemy. God will have, I had this point in application, but I'm going to give it to you right now. God will be glorified over all that oppose him. There's not a question of if ever God is not going to stand on the gold medal podium place. He's always going to be there. He will be exalted. He will be glorified. And he will receive his glory over all that oppose him. More on that later. For now, verse 14. Moses said, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. We've been working through this, trying to glimpse and understand a little bit more. We struggle sometimes with God hardened his heart and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And what's really happening is God not allowing Pharaoh to have his own will in the situation. Is God exercising his will over Pharaoh and hardening his heart? Well, God is doing things that are causing Pharaoh to harden his own heart. Pharaoh, look what he says. He refuses For everybody that likes to sit in the tension of God's will and free will, you can stare at those words. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses. He refuses. Look what he says later, down in verse 16. End of verse 16. But so far, you have not obeyed. You're not listening, Pharaoh. Why? He doesn't want to. He thinks he knows better. He thinks he knows more. He thinks he is God. And God's will is working in conjunction with Pharaoh's own hardened will to the things of God. We can't reconcile all of this. I say these words and even as they say them, I'm just like, Holy Spirit, please give discernment to your people. Because these are hard things for us to reconcile. We're talking about the deep working of the Spirit of God and the responsibility of man. And I can't explain that at times in my own life, let alone Pharaoh's or yours. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses. The Holy Spirit did not prompt Moses to write, I'm not letting him. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. I'm not letting him obey me. He's choosing to disobey and neglect the signs that I have given him. He refuses. He has not obeyed. The cry is heard in verse 16. You see the words, and you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go. I noted here, to this point, Exodus 3.18 and here in 16, six times that God has reiterated the message. Let my people go. You know what's interesting about the request? It's not a request. 
It's not an if you please. It's not an if you're done with them. God is making a demand of Pharaoh. Pharaoh, I'm God. The Hebrews are my people. And I am saying to you, Pharaoh, let my people go. Do you remember what God said back to Moses? Was it chapter 4? Oh, chapter 4, verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn, verse 23. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. I am God, and you're holding my child ransom. And I will take matters to persuade you into my righteous hand if you do not obey Pharaoh. This is, remember I said last week, the foot is on the accelerator, the mighty hand is moving. Remember what God said? It will take a mighty hand for Pharaoh to allow them to leave Israel. Pharaoh is refusing. You have not obeyed. Let my people go. Widely known in and out of the church. Silly songs written in our history. Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Whoa. Let my people go. Can we do little dances and sing little ditties? It just happened right in front of me. Can't help ourselves. It's a demand of a righteous and holy God. Let my people go. Let them go. God is telling Pharaoh, let them go. Why? Because Pharaoh's a bad guy? I mean, yeah, Pharaoh's a bad guy. Why? Because the Israelites are under a burden that they can't lift? Yeah, they are under a burden they can't lift. Because his promises are always good. His promise is good to his people and they want him to fulfill his promise to his people. Yeah, they want those things. Moreover, I want us to pay very careful attention to what Moses has shown us to this point about why God wants Egypt to let Israel go. And I would be willing to wager I don't want to take anything away or knock anyone's observations in the scripture, so please don't be offended. But I'll be willing to wager this has never been considered as we've read the story. Let my people go. Why? Why is God demanding of Pharaoh to let them go? Exodus chapter 3, verse 18. That they, my people, may sacrifice to me their God. Exodus 5, 1. That they may hold a feast to me. Exodus 5.3, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Exodus 7, right here, verse 16, that they may serve me. Oh, there's something wrapped up deeply in them being released to serve God. Pharaoh is a bad guy. Egypt has heavy burdens on Israel that they can't lift. God has promised that he will deliver his people. But there is something deep and profound wrapped up in God's demand that Pharaoh let his people go. And what is it? My glory, Pharaoh, let them go that they may serve me, that they may worship me, that they may hold a feast to me, that they may sacrifice to me. Let them go. I will be glorified, Pharaoh. Let them go. And now this begs the question, why is God so needy? Everybody's thought it. It's okay to admit that you've thought this. Why is God so needy that he, he needs us to? Do you understand that God is the author of all things? He is not needy he is deserving, and he is, in this moment, rightly, rightly demanding what he deserves. Let them go. Why? They were created for my glory. We'll get to it a little later. God is demanding the release of the Hebrews in order that they may go out to worship him. What is involved in the worship of God? The glory of God. I wrestled with how to title this sermon today because there's so much happening in the text. Should we call it the glory of God? Well, I could call every sermon that because the Bible is about the glory of God. All of our life is to be lived to the glory of God. Everything that God does is declaring and displaying his glory to his people in his creation. He is glorious. He is demanding of glory. God is very clear throughout scripture about desiring glory for himself. 
God says, I will not share my glory. You want to read about, you want to read about God and his glory and his thoughts on his own glory? Pastor, I don't know what to read in the Bible this week, but I really want to read the Bible. Read Isaiah. If you want to get a glimpse about how serious God is about his glory, read the book of Isaiah. In the process of God freeing the Hebrews, bad guys will come to justice. Heavy burdens will be lifted. Promises will be fulfilled. But the point of it all, we're about to walk through 10 plagues. And the point of every single one of them is the glory of God. In verse 17, the first demonstration against Pharaoh and the Egyptians cuts to the heart of their civilization. Most of us probably, when we think of the, of the plagues on Egypt, we probably jump to the death of the firstborn, because that's drastic. And most of us probably are tempted to think, well, it's kind of an acceleration. It is, but it's like from zero to 60, and there's still 60 left on the speedometer, right? Like, it's gonna, it gets kicked into overdrive a little later. This first plague cuts to the heart of the existence of a people. This is not just water turning to blood. This is a big deal. In the ESV, I don't know what version you're reading this morning. I don't care as long as it's a faithful translation of God's word. It'd be interesting to know after the service because you're all going to start counting after I tell you that in the ESV that I'm reading and study through, I counted 12 times that the Nile is named in 10 verses. Look, I mean, look at it. Stand on the bank of the Nile. Let them go, thus says the Lord. I will strike the Nile. The fish in the Nile. The Nile will stink. The Egyptians will grow weary of drinking the water of the Nile. Over and over. Nile, Nile, Nile. The Nile River. Pharaoh, Egypt, I'm coming for your existence. I, I like geography. I love history. I like geography. And from nationalgeographic.org, quote, The Nile River flows from south to north through eastern Africa. It begins in the rivers that flow into Lake Victoria, located in modern-day Uganda, Tanzania, and Kenya, and empties into the Mediterranean Sea more than 4,100 miles to the north, making it one of the longest rivers in the world. The Nile River was critical to the development of ancient Egypt, in addition to Egypt, the Nile runs through or along the border of 10 other African countries. Nat Geo claims that 95% of all Egyptians still live within just a few miles of the Nile River. 95% of the people in Egypt live within just a few miles of the Nile River. Why? In ancient times, and you could study uh, ancient Near Eastern civilizations for more on this, in my just cursory glimpse of it, the Nile is a major source of fertility to the land. The Nile flows in such a way that its water causes for great irrigation out throughout Egypt. It's become a very lush, very fertile area, and so the Nile has been traced as a source of fertility. It's obviously, as a river, a source of commerce and trade. We understand this in America. If you drive north on I-75 and stop over the Zilwaukee Bridge, which I don't recommend, you can still see ships traveling up and down by river. You can go up farther north into the Sioux Locks and you can see ships, commerce, moving up and down. So this is not a, a yeah, of course, commerce and trade, shipping in and out, up and down the river. But that's not why God's judging Egypt with the Nile. They had a God for the Nile. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it. H-A-P-I. I liked to read it and think that they called it happy. I'm not Egyptian, and I'm not living thousands of years ago, so there's a likelihood that they didn't say it that way. But they worshipped it. In fact, some believe, if you'll notice in verse 15, look what it says very specifically. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. We're going to see that again. In fact, it happens if I turn the page over. What does it happen? Down in chapter 8, verse 20. Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to 
the water. In other places in scripture, when we read goes out to water or goes to water, we're talking more of a, pardon me, I need to go to the water for a minute. No, no, no. With Pharaoh, this is believed to be a daily ritual of worship. We worship you and praise you, oh happy God, for giving us this happy Nile River that supplies us with happy land. Pharaoh's daughter went to bathe in it. Remember that? It was a long time ago, but it was back in Exodus chapter 2. Moses' mom and dad put the baby in the basket and put the basket in the reeds and left it to see what would happen. And the Bible says, as Pharaoh's daughter and her servants came down to bathe. Like, ew, gross, do that in a bath. No, 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 no. Do you understand? Them bathing in the Nile as Pharaoh's family was a way of them washing the impurities off because the happy God of the Nile would cleanse them. So powerful are you, God of the Nile. We bathe in your waters and we find fertility in our life. We find youthfulness helps our skin. There's a lot going on in this passage right now. There's a lot going on. God is coming down on Egypt. He's confronting their gods. He's demonstrating his sovereignty over his own creation. I said last week when we saw the staffs, take the staff in your hand, lay it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. And then the other magicians come out, however many of them there were, and they throw down their staffs, and those also become serpents. And then the staff that Aaron threw down goes to town and eats up all the staffs that the Egyptian magicians threw down, and God demonstrates his power. This is just a glimpse of my power, Pharaoh of Egypt. I just consumed your magic arts. Now he's confronting their gods, but there's more happening here than just that. Look what he says. Look at the declaration that happens. We probably skipped over it too quickly. Verse 16, and you shall say to him, the Lord to Moses, Moses, you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you. This is a declaration. I'm not here on a peaceful mission. I'm not here just to say, Pharaoh, let him go. I'm coming as an emissary of the Most High God, and he is demanding that you obey him. Let my people go. Verse 17, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. God is answering Pharaoh. Remember what he said back in 5.2? Flip back and look at it. Exodus 5, chapter 2. Or Exodus chapter 5, verse 2. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey? I won't let Israel go. I will not obey. Who is he that I should obey? Remember Pharaoh's position before God? I don't know. Who is he? I don't know him. I will not obey. Well, now God is making himself known. You're not going to obey me, Pharaoh? Watch the power of me as the God of no account. Watch as I demonstrate you who thinks you hold such an insignificant people with such an insignificant God under your hand, watch what I do as I strike the Nile River. And let's pay very careful attention to exactly what the Lord does here. How many of you, show of hands, maybe you read ahead, maybe you were just paying attention, how many of you would answer the question like this? Ready? Here's the question. What turned to blood in the first plague of Egypt? If you would answer that question by saying the Nile River, raise your hand. The truth is the Nile River did turn to blood. That is true. Look at what God says. Look at what God says through Moses in verse 17. The Nile shall turn to blood. First point, not turn red. Not turn to something like blood. You can go out there and read all kinds of conspiracies. You can look back even in recent years of some crazy phenomenon that caused the Nile River to turn red. And they're like, look, it's the blood river. Ah! But it wasn't blood. It just turned red. You can read all about it. Just do a simple search on the internet. When has it ever lied to you? The Nile shall turn to blood. Not turn red. Not turn to something like blood. The Nile shall turn to blood. Verse 18. The fish will die. The Nile will stink. The Egyptians who worship the Nile, who probably had gods of the Nile in their homes, are going to grow weary of drinking that life-giving water from the Nile because it's blood. Not because it's something like 
blood. Look at, and not just denial. Let's, let's be fine-tuned in our understanding and attention to God's word. Verse 19, and the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff. I love how he points out the one that was a serpent. <laughs> Remember that staff that was a serpent? It's a staff again. Take that one. Take your staff, verse 19, and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt. I underlined over the of Egypt and I circled waters. Over the waters of Egypt. It goes on, look at over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Interesting side note that probably won't be very interesting to most, but I want to share it. In the original Hebrew, vessels is not there. The word vessels is not there. In the original Hebrew, it read like this, that there may be blood in the wood and blood in the stone. And those who are scholarly in their understanding of ancient Near Eastern and ancient Egypt, they will tell you that this is a shot at their idols. That there may be blood in the wood and in the stone. Why? Because there's certain amounts of moisture in wood and stone, huh? Can you imagine? Right? Everybody's like, there's no moisture in stone. Sure there is. There's a certain level of moisture in rock. There's a certain level of moisture in wood. And God is saying, I am so sovereign, I am so holy, and I will execute my judgment so fully and so perfectly that even their gods will have blood in them. I am God. Can you imagine? Can you absolutely imagine going nowhere and finding water anywhere. It's summertime. Yesterday was warm. Yesterday was warm. Not as hot as a couple weeks ago. It was warm. And how many people? Oh, I just want a cool drink of water. Okay? Now let's go over to the Middle East in the realm of Egypt in the hot weather, and it's hot. And you just want a drink of water. I'm thirsty. But you can't get it. God has taken away your ability. Look at it says. Look at verse 24. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. And just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron to do what God had told them, they do it. And God does what he said he would do. And there was blood. Look at verse 21. The fish in the Nile died. The Nile stank. The Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. Look at this line. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. How many of you have been thinking while I've been talking that the first plague and the last plague have to do with blood? That's a really good connection to make. If you've been thinking about that, I want to just, good job, and I'm being serious. The first plague... The first sign of God's judgment on the people of Egypt and Pharaoh is to turn every ounce of water in the land to blood. And at the end, God will kill the firstborn child from Pharaoh, from the highest to the lowest of the land, wherever the doorpost is not marked with the blood of the lamb. Ooh, ooh. Why the Nile? Why strike the Nile? Because the Egyptians are idol worshipers. They worshipped gods that were no god at all. They worshipped Pharaoh. They worshipped Happy. They worshipped whatever other gods you could. All their pharaohs became gods to them. Idol worshippers. And God in his divine and infinite wisdom, knowing these people do not know me, they're never going to respond to me, I'm going to judge them for their wickedness. And here, they are being judged not only for their wickedness, they are disobedient to what God has said. Now, one last note before we try and gain for our own life today from this passage. I want you to observe how very little is needed for a hard heart. Everybody says, I remember you talking about hard hearts last week. Maybe it was the week before. We talked about them recently. I want you to pay attention in Scripture how little a hard heart needs to stay hardened. Okay? I want you to pay attention to how little a hard heart needs to stay hardened. Verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same 
by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them. Turns and goes into his house and wouldn't take it to heart. Among the many commentaries that I read through, just researching, what, is, what do the scholars understand from ancient texts? Do you know they have a, there is an account from what they can only date to be around 1300 B.C. of a writing found in Egypt where it says, no water found. Are you kidding me? I don't believe that's true. Like, science is finding truth to all this stuff all the time. We're like, I don't believe that's true. Consider right now, that was a side note, how little is needed. Among the commentaries that I read, every single person agrees, and I agree as well. The thing that Pharaoh needed his magicians to do right here was to reverse what had been done. We need water, Pharaoh. Glad your pawns over there poured some jars out with there's blood everywhere. Look at this is why the Bible is so important. Look at the end of verse 21. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. I want you to think about the magicians. These guys are like comedy hour to me. These doggone magicians are, I'm just like, so Pharaoh's over there like, bah, water and blood, no big deal. Get the men, the ones that had the stabs until they got eaten by the other staff. Can you imagine the, the magicians are like, Oh, happy God of the Nile, make this water into blood. And they pour out blood. Of course they did. Of course they did. Of course they did. There was no water to be found in the land. The magicians did not do anything by their secret arts. There was no water to be found. And Pharaoh, what does Pharaoh do? My guys. Goes into his house. Consider how little is needed for a hard heart to remain hardened. Pharaoh's pride would not listen. Look what it says. Pharaoh turned. Verse 22, would not listen. Pharaoh turned and went into his house and he did not even take this into account. Wouldn't listen. Didn't take it into account. Goes into his house while his people, look it, and all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Pharaoh just goes into his house the Egyptians are left now digging for water. Why? Their lifeblood's gone. Now, I did not include verse 25 in this week's sermon. We're going to use it next week, but I want you to note what verse 25 says really quick. Seven full days passed from the time the Lord, after the Lord, had struck the Nile. Just says seven full days passed before, and this is why we're looking at that verse next week and not today, but here's the point of why I bring it up. Seven full days passed, but it doesn't tell us how long it was before the blood was again water. The plagues are going to start rolling. And nothing says about, and now there's, now there's good water. More on that next time we gather. As God begins the process of delivering Israel, it will take a mighty hand. We need to keep that verse in mind. Exodus chapter 3, verse 19. It will take a mighty hand through this first plague on Pharaoh and on the Egyptians in chapter 7, not chapter 8. Here are some takeaways for us. God sets his people free for the purpose of worshiping him for his glory. Verse 16. The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. The, the side note for Israel is that they're going to be free. They're under the burden and bond of Egypt, and they'll be free. But the purpose for their freedom is to worship God, not just simply to be free. Like Israel and Egypt, we are born into the bondage of sin, and we need to be set free. Israel is waiting for freedom. For us, this has been done. They were looking ahead. When will we be free? How long, O oh Lord? When will you deliver? When will you come? We've been crying to you for hundreds of years now in Egypt. We're slaves. When will you deliver? For us today, we look back on God sending Jesus Christ to us. That work has been done for us. The freedom has come to us through faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to know today, have you placed your faith and your confidence and your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you? Through faith, believe that God raised him from the dead. And do you profess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God 
the Father. Do you understand? Your salvation is about God's glory. God is glorified in saving a lost soul. And God is glorified in judging a disobedient soul. A person set free from sin is set free to worship God and to glorify God. This is not an option. The worship of God is not optional for the people that have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is a command. You will worship. God said that everyone called by his name, Isaiah 43, verse 7. Everyone called by my name, created for my glory. Are you glorifying God? Are you bringing glory to God the Father? If you sit here today claiming faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, your business is glorifying God. Created in my image, called by my name for my glory. Pastor, can you give me three ways? Just give me three ways that I can begin glorifying God in my life today. I tell you what, because you want three, I'll give you two. Your note takers, you can write these two extremely profound ways to glorify God down, and then you can begin working on them. Ready for the first one? Love God. Love Him. Love God. I'm only going to give you, and you know where this is going now, don't you? Oh, great. Pastor said too. We know where he's going with this one. Love God and love people. Yeah, but let's just dwell at love God for a second. Jesus Christ said they're the two greatest commandments. There's nothing greater we can do but to love God first with everything. I shared with a group of men recently and I heard a couple guys talking and I totally ripped everything they said because it's absolutely true. How do I love God though? I don't see God. I don't touch God. I don't hear God. I was able to fall in love with my wife. I was able to fall in love with my girlfriend, with my boyfriend. How? How did you fall in love with your wife? How did you fall in love with your husband? I hope you're still doing it. Unfortunately, free marital counseling in the middle of this sermon through Exodus chapter 7, 14 through 24 is that we get married and then we stop doing everything we did to get married. How did you fall in love? Oh, you listened to Every word. You spent every minute. You knew everything. You talked to everyone. And most people, by the time you said, we're getting married, they're like, well, duh. You only been talking about her nonstop for the last ever it's all you ever do is talk about so-and-so. It's all you ever do. Like we all knew this years ago. Because all you ever did is talk about spending time with and talking to and knowing everything about. And that's how you fell in love with your spouse. Those in the room that hope to fall in love with a spouse, that's how you fall in love with a spouse. By spending so much time together. And so I wrote this down. Love God. Love him. Love him. Learn and know Everything you can learn and know about God. Don't be satisfied with sitting here and looking at me because I've loved God and prepared a sermon for you. Love him yourself. Don't love him because I love him. Love him yourself. Study his word. Read, he wrote this to you. He wrote it to you. Read it. Know and learn everything you can know and learn about God. Study him. Read his word. Observe him. Interact with him. Talk about him. Talk to him. This is how we fall in love with God. Pastor, I just, man, my love for the Lord is growing cold. I guarantee if you tell me that, I promise, the first thing I'm going to ask you and the first thing you're going to come to realize is you are spending zero time in his word. Because it is not possible for the redeemed of God, with the Holy Spirit of God living inside of them, to not fall more and more in love with God as you read about him. It's not possible. Pastor, I'm telling you right now, I read his word and I get nothing. There's no, then you are either in rebellion or you have not come to know God. It is not possible to read his word and not fall more and more and more and more in love with God. God, think about him. Talk about him. Be willing to be inconvenienced in your flesh to edify your spirit because you know God. That's how you fall in love with God. 
That's how you grow in your love relationship with God. Jesus said, love. Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Jesus says, all your strength. Love God. You want to glorify God? Love him. What about that second part, Pastor? That's right. We don't get to stop the first part. Oh, I love God. <laughs> How are you doing at loving people? Because, man, people are hard. People are not easy to love. Show of hands, you got somebody that's not easy to love in your life. Be honest. Oh, Pastor, I got somebody that's not easy to love. Right? Right? Nobody's being honest with themselves. Everybody in this room has somebody that's hard to love. Every single person in this room. You don't want to put your hand up. You're like, I don't want to admit to that, but it's okay. I know it's true. Everybody has got somebody in their life that's hard to love. Every single person. How do we love people? I want to encourage you in this. You love people best by loving God first. You can write that down. I probably just hijacked it from someone, but I have no idea who. The Bible. You can love people best by loving God first. How do I love people? Start by loving people in your home. Start by loving the people literally the closest to you. Start there. Start with your spouse. If you're not married, start with your parents. If you live on your, like, I live on my own, I'm not, then, then, then go love your family well. Love your mom and your dad, your brothers, your sisters. Your, love people close to you well. Then branch out. Love the people you go to church with. I hope you're here this morning, and I hope this is not just a one-time stop for you. I hope that you have a regular church that you are with. If you're here today visiting, praise the Lord. If you've got a regular church you're normally with, praise God. But if this is your home church, love the people you see and you're going to share a meal with, love them well. Oh, I love, I love Christians. Do you? Are you as willing to be inconvenienced in your life for Christians as you are to be inconvenienced for God? Because let me tell you, no one can love man if they have not, no one can love God if they do not first love man whom they have seen. Read all about it, the gospel of 1 John chapter 3 or 4. You cannot love man without loving God first. And you cannot love God if you do not love man. Love people close to you and love them well. Then what? Love the people that God puts in front of you. You ever think about actually extending love to the clerk at the store? To the business transaction? To the person opposite you at the gas pump? Like anywhere you go, just love them. Hey man, hope you're having a good day. Like Pastor, I don't say that to people. Exactly my point. Hey man, I don't know what you got going on today, but I hope it's a good day for you. I hope you stay safe. Be safe and whatever you got to do, whatever. I hope it goes well for you. I hope you have a great day. That's what you're going to get. Thanks, you too. Somebody might actually say, why are you saying that to me? (laughs) Doors open. Just want to tell you about Jesus. They might walk away at that point, but they might not. Love people. Love them well. Love the people you're with. Love Christians. Share your love for God. Who do I talk about God to? People. And it's the way that you love God, by talking about him to people that he calls you to love. Love people that are hard to love. Love people that are easy to love. Interact with people. Be inconvenienced to people. Love people. Jesus said these are the two greatest commandments. Love people. Love God. God sets his people free for purpose. That purpose is to worship him and to give God glory. Second, God does good things for his people, not just for the sake of good things, but for his glory. God does good things for his people, not just for their good, but ultimately for his glory. I have some very challenging questions that I had to stare in the face before I could stand here and speak them to you. I'm just going to read these and let you process. I'll try and do it slowly. How often do we just want God to do good things for us so that we don't experience bad things? How many of us just want God to do the good thing because we just don't want the bad thing? with no concern for him being glorified. Just do good, God. Just do good to me. I don't want to go through the bad. You're not even thinking about the glory of God. You're just thinking about either good or bad. That's all you're thinking about, good or bad. Do we think of glorifying God when we experience bad things? When you go through the storm of your life, are you thinking about glorifying God? You should be. We should be. 
I often don't. We probably often don't because we're in the storm. And we can't see the greater good because of the storm. The Israelites just want to be free of slavery. They can't see the greater good of, that's great, God, the Nile's blood. Now they hate us even more. They can't see the good because of the bad right now in front of them, but they should be giving him glory. They shouldn't be waiting until they're out in the wilderness, a three days journey to give God glory. They should be doing it now. Are you? How often does God give good things? And our return is to show little to no concern for his glory. You see your hand if God's done something good for you this week, right? Everyone's hand can go up. You're breathing, right? God does good things. Psalm 119, verse, I think, 69. You are good and you do good. It's not that God is sometimes good and sometimes not. God is good. We want God to bring bad guys to justice, don't we? Solomon wanted it. Remember Ecclesiastes? How long are the bad guys going to get away with being bad while the righteous suffer? All through Ecclesiastes, Solomon's really concerned about it. We want bad guys to come to justice. We want burdens lifted. Anybody got a burden you want lifted? Tell me. Right. You got a burden you want lifted. I know you do. I do. You want God's promises fulfilled. Yet above all these things and whatever others, how often do you simply desire the glory of God? Father, today I come before you and I have such a long list I don't even want to start. But first... You are God, and I want to give you glory. When was the last time your prayer started that way? I'm learning. I'm not standing up here as I got this all figured out. I'm learning to first approach my God and my King with the glory that he is due. How often is the glory of God alone your primary thought and concern? Here's some good ones. When was the last time you desired the glory of God, for better or worse, whether rich or poor? in sickness or in health? When was the last time you desired the glory of God, whether the bank account had ten dollars or $10,000 in it? When was the last time the church desired the glory of God over a big crowd or good songs or a building? Thanks, thanks Lord, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take that. When did you last simply desire the glory of God? It's what he's most concerned with. What is the chief end of man? To enjoy God and glorify him forever. There's nothing else that man can do. We pray about it. Village prayers, I don't know what, number seven or whatever. Oh God, burden us. Father, we pray. Burden us with a greater concern for your glory and the advance of the gospel than for worldly comfort and satisfaction. But really? Are we, do we want that? God, I desire your glory, and I desire your glory more than anything else. God desires his glory more than anything else, too. And when we step into desiring God's glory more than anything else, all of a sudden, God's will and our will, it's like a a blessed, holy trinity united us to its purpose, the glory of God. Will you allow yourself to be made uncomfortable for the glory of God? Will you go without comfort for the glory of God? God sets his people free for the purpose of worshiping him for his glory. God does good things for his people, ultimately for his glory. And God, I told you we would talk about this point again, God will show his might over all that oppose him for his glory. Oh, man. Sometimes we sing that song. There is coming a day. You know what's going to happen on that day? Every enemy and opposer whatsoever will be opposed by the might and strength of God and he will be glorified forever. Forever. The Nile was a God to the Egyptians. There's a reason that Moses calls out the Nile so many times in ten verses for us. The Nile was a god to the Egyptians. It was worshipped. It was adored. It was bathed in so that they could experience youthfulness. And do you know what God said? It's mine. I'm God. And we wonder, how could they worship a river? Commerce and worship. And how in the world could they worship a river? How many of you thought, how could they worship a river? Well, you can be helped in that by understanding that God warns they will worship the creation instead of the creator, Romans 1. 
they will worship. It's happening. It's happening all over. We worship the creation instead of the creator all the time. God warns of people exchanging the truth of God for myths. Knowing him to be God, they neither give him glory or acknowledge him as God. The creature, the creation, images of the, cre- of the creator. You understand, none of these are to be worshipped. We don't worship creation. We don't worship one another. We don't even paint a picture of what we think God looked like and say, look at that, there's God, worship him. Do you understand, in just like a few chapters, what, 10 chapters, 20-something chapters in Exodus, we're going to read, behold, here is the God who brought you out of Egypt. you know what they were doing? They were fashioning the golden calf, not to worship the calf itself, but to say, here is the image of the God who brought you out of Egypt. We don't worship images. Our God has no shape. He has no form. He has no stately appearance or majesty that we should esteem him. We simply worship him. If you ever want to experience worshiping images, wander yourself into a Catholic church sometime. I did it yesterday. Images everywhere, all kinds of stuff to worship. We don't do that. Do you know why? Everybody's like, we're going to pray now. Everybody close your eyes. you know why? So that we're not looking at one another when we pray. Because though you bear the image of God, you are not God. And I want my mind focused on a heavenly father that my eyes cannot imagine. That my mind cannot, you ever do this? In your prayer life, in your quiet time, you ever close your eyes and just imagine what does God look like? Yeah, I do. I do. But have you ever been able to come up with something? You can't come up with something. He dwells in unapproachable light. No image. We don't worship the creation. We don't worship the creature. We don't worship images of the creator. Well, but it's, it's representing God. No, God doesn't be represented. He's God. We worship him as God in the form that he has told us. You shall have. Oh, we'll get there later. What we learn from the Egyptians worshiping the Nile is that we, every said, Pastor, what's the point of the whole Nile thing? We do not depend on the happy God of the Nile. We depend on God in all things and for all things. Wow, that's confronting for America. That confronts us hard. And I tried to think of a whole long list of adjectives for our day and our time. I just want to leave it at this. Are you depending, maybe you really need to dig and search in your soul. Are you depending on something other than God in your life. I leave no words to define that. Are you depending, have you not realized that you're depending on something other than God? What we learn from the Egyptians is that we depend on God only. All power, all authority, we depend on him. In closing, as we see the Egyptians dig in the dirt to find water, as we see God who confronts the gods of Egypt, turning every drop of water to blood. As Pharaoh hardens his heart and goes back into his house, as Moses stands there and the Nile stinks and the fish are dead and there's no water to drink, we are very right to turn our mind and think of the man from whose side blood and water flowed. Christ died for you to worship and glorify God above all others. Will you pray this morning? Father, we come to you. Thank you, God, for this time, for this day. Thank you, Father, for your word. Lord, I pray you'd strengthen us. May we be a people that are about your glory. May we be a people that bring you glory. Father, as you do good for us, and if you allow bad, may we bring you glory. Father, I pray that the glory of your name, the renown of your name, the splendor of your majesty, God, I pray that it would be at the heartbeat of every person here, and I pray that, God, it would be at the heartbeat of our church, that we would be zealous for the glory of your name. For we believe that you are most glorified when your people adore and worship you for who you are. We praise you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week. 
If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at Until next time, stay in God's Word.